Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 18, 2014. I'll start this week's podcast with the latest on possible successors to the current chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Dave Camp. I also have an announcement about potential housing finance reform. In our low-income housing tax credit segment, I begin by discussing legislation that would alter tenant eligibility rules for low-income housing tax credit housing. I then have two state-level stories one about legislation to create a low-income housing tax credit in Washington, D.C., and one about an audit of Missouri's low-income housing tax credit program. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit section, I discuss a job announcement from the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, as well as a letter from the New Market Tax Credit Coalition that asked congressional leaders to extend the program. In our historic tax credit section, I share information about the National Park Service's annual report on the historic tax credit program, and an advisory council on historic preservation report on protecting cities as they adjust to the changing economy, as well as updates on historic tax credits in Tennessee and Texas. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, I remind listeners about our upcoming San Francisco Renewable Energy Conference. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I'll begin with an update on the race for chairmanship of the House Ways and Means Committee in 2015. As I mentioned last week, Chairman Dave Camp is set to be term-limited out of the position at the end of this year. The two Republicans who have thrown their hat into the ring to compete for the spot are Representatives Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady. It's beginning, though, to sound like there may be a third challenger, Dave Camp himself. News outlets are reporting that Representative Camp is unhappy about the Republican Party's term limit rules. At a recent reporter's breakfast, Camp said that the term limits were a mistake. The term limits mean that a Republican lawmaker can only serve six years as chairman or senior minority party member on a committee. Republican leaders can issue a waiver, though, to allow a Republican to stay on a committee for longer than six years. Republicans did just that for Paul Ryan a couple of years ago. At that time, Representative Ryan would have been term limited out of his role as head of the Budget Committee. Camp has not said if he'll seek a waiver to stay on as Ways and Means Committee Chairman. It'll be interesting to see if he does request such a waiver and how such a waiver could affect tax reform. Speaking of which, I'd like to remind listeners that Novogratz and Company will be holding a webinar tomorrow on Chairman Camp's tax reform discussion draft, as well as on President Obama's fiscal year 2015 budget proposal. You can register for the webinar at www.novico.com webinars. Turning to housing finance reform, last week, Senate Banking Committee Chairman Tim Johnson and Ranking Member Mike Crapo announced that they had a plan for overhauling the housing finance market. The bipartisan plan also includes a plan for remaking Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 
the two senators announced last week on March 11th that they had to reach an agreement on such housing reform legislation. Then, Senators Johnson and Crapo released a discussion draft of the bill text on Sunday. The discussion draft amends Senate Bill 1217 and renames it the Housing Finance Reform and Taxpayer Protection Act of 2014. Senate Bill 1217 was originally introduced last June to reform Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So now, the revised bill would wind down and eliminate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac over five years. The bill would replace Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac with well-capitalized private entities that would securitize qualifying single-family and multifamily mortgages with an explicitly priced government guarantee, and that guarantee would be provided by a new federal agency called the Federal Mortgage Insurance Corporation, or FMIC. The bill would eliminate affordable housing goals and establish transparent and accountable housing-related funds that would focus on ensuring that there is sufficient, decent housing available. The funds are not paid for with tax dollars, though. Rather, they're paid through a small FMIC user fee of 10 basis points, such that only those who choose to use the system would pay the fee. Along with the legislation, Senators Crapo and Johnson released a section-by-section description and a detailed summary. Industry groups have already begun commenting on the announcement, and I'll bring you some of their responses in next week's podcast. In the meantime, we are posting a guest blog on the proposed bill at novogratic.wordpress.com. This guest blog is by Peter Lawrence, the Director of Public Policy and Government Affairs here at Novogratic Company. He's in our D.C. office. If you have additional questions, I encourage you to reach out to Peter at 202-739-0882. You can also find a copy of the discussion draft along with the section-by-section descriptions and a detailed summary online at www.taxcredithousing.com. In the local housing tax credit news, I'll begin with an update from Washington. Recently, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat New York, introduced the Low and Moderate Income Housing Act of 2014 to encourage the development of mixed-income housing. The bill, H.R. 4130, would replace the 4060 minimum set-aside test with a new 50-50-120 minimum set-aside test. As listeners active in the affordable housing industry know, under the 4060 minimum set-aside test, a project owner must set aside a minimum of 40% of the units in a property for occupancy by families earning no more than 60% of the area median gross income, or AMGI for short. Under the proposed 50-50-120 test, a minimum of 50% of a development's residential units would need to be set aside for occupancy by families whose income is between 50% of AMGI and 120% of AMGI. Under the 4060 test, the rent for units is restricted to 30% of the maximum income level of 60% of AMGI. Under the proposed bill, the maximum rent would apparently be 30% of 120% of AMGI. This translates into a maximum growth rent double that currently available under the 4060 test. The purpose of the bill is to enable a broader range of family income levels to qualify for low-income housing tax credit units. The low-income housing tax credit program is currently limited to families earning up to 60% of AMGI. 
Families earning between 60 and 120% of AMGI often also struggle to find affordable housing. So changing the low-income tax program requirements could give these moderate-income families access to affordable housing. Now, this concept of serving moderate-income individuals isn't a new one. The President's last few budgets have included a provision that would allow some residents earning over 60% of AMGI to qualify for tax-free housing. However, this 50-50-120 test would replace the 40-60 test as opposed to creating an additional option. H.R. 4130 was referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means right upon its introduction. It's not currently expected to generate any significant support, but if it does, more thought will be needed as to its statutory structure, including whether it should replace the 4060 test, as well as its relationship with taxes and rental housing bonds. In state-level news, Washington, D.C. Councilmember Kenyon McDuffie earlier this month introduced the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Act of 2014. This act would create a 9% tax credit to provide supplemental funding for rental housing developments that have already received a federal 9% low-income housing tax credit allocation. The District of Columbia's Department of Housing and Community Development would award an equal number of federal and District of Columbia low-income housing tax credits to qualified developments. The District of Columbia tax credit would be claimed over the course of 10 years and would be transferable. The act would take effect following approval by the mayor, a 30-day congressional review, and publication in the District of Columbia Register. At the time of this recording, no hearings have been scheduled. You can find a copy of the bill at www.taxcredithousing.com. Simply go to the Legislation tab. In other low-income housing tax credit news, last week, the Missouri State Auditor released an audit of the Missouri Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. The state program received a fair rating from the state auditor. This rating means that the program needs to improve operations in several areas. The LHTC program is Missouri's largest tax credit program. The Missouri Low-Income Housing Tax Credit was enacted in 1990 and is managed by the Missouri Housing Development Commission. The state program was designed to supplement its federal counterpart. For all Missouri developments that receive a federal Low-Income Housing Tax Credit allocation, such developments may also receive a state credit equal to 100% of the federal credit. Now, the program had $144 million in redemptions in fiscal year 2013, according to the audit. The audit projects that annual redemptions will increase to roughly $200 million per year through 2018. The fiscal year 2013 analysis does show that the program returned $0.08 cents in state revenue for every dollar spent. Now, the audit does present a number of recommendations for improving the program's efficiency, including reducing the number of years over which the tax credits are claimed. To read the audit, go to www.taxcredithousing.com, click on the LHTC tab, and go to QAPs and Applications. If you have questions about the Missouri Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, I encourage you to contact my partner, Michael Kressig, in our St. Louis, Missouri office. In new market tax credit news, I begin with a job announcement. Last week, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, or CDFI Fund, announced that it was looking for a new director. Director Donna Gambrell retired from the position at the end of December. Since then, the CDFI Fund has not had an acting director. However, Dennis Nolan is still serving as deputy director. 
and work and projects are continuing as normal, according to the City of I Fund, including administration of the New Market Tax Credit Program. Those interested in applying for the position should visit the City of I Fund's website for more information. In other New Market Tax Credit news, the New Market Tax Credit Coalition sent a letter to the Congressional Tax Writing Committees asking lawmakers to extend the New Market Tax Credit. The coalition described the New Market Tax Credit as an effective tool for revitalizing economically distressed communities. And it listed some of the program's accomplishments, such as creating 550,000 jobs and leveraging $60 billion in capital investment. The letter said that federal spending on community development in terms of gross domestic product has fallen by 75% during the last 30 years. This means that the New Market Tax Credit is often the only capital resource available for revitalizing economically underserved communities. It cited data by the Department of Treasury indicating that businesses and jobs created through the New Market Tax Credit generated enough income tax revenue to offset the cost of the program. This letter was signed by more than 1,400 businesses, investors, nonprofits, and community leaders. You can find a copy of the letter at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have questions about the New Markets Tax Credit Program, please contact my partner, Thomas Bowman, in our St. Louis, Missouri office. Tom can be reached at 314-621-3471. In historic tax credit news, last week, the National Park Service released its annual report on federal tax incentives for rehabilitating historic buildings. The report highlighted several of the program's accomplishments in 2013. Here's a summary. More than 1,100 proposed projects with nearly $7 billion in qualified expenses were approved. 803 completed projects with $3.4 billion in qualified expenses were certified. These completed projects created nearly 60,000 jobs. On the housing front, more than 25,000 housing units were constructed or renovated. This includes nearly 7,100 new, low, and moderate income units. Since 1976, the historic preservation tax incentives have generated more than $69 billion in historic preservation activity for nearly 40,000 projects. Now, along with the fiscal year report, the Park Service released a supplementary statistical report and analysis for fiscal year 2013. That report found that demand for the historic tax credit remains strong. Nearly 1,300 properties were approved in 2013 for certification of historic significance, which is the first step in establishing eligibility for the credit. By the way, that's an 8% increase in certified projects over the previous year. The report also mentioned how last year 40% of projects using the federal historic tax credit also used state historic tax credits. This suggests that multiple sources of subsidy are critical to making projects financially feasible. The Park Service said that as the real estate market recovers from the national recession, the historic tax credit has been a catalyst for continued growth. You can find a copy of the report at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have questions about the historic tax credit or how you can layer different sources of subsidy for your historic rehabilitation project, please contact my partner, Stacy Stewart, in our Dover, Ohio office. She can be reached at 330-365-5400. Now, I'd like to discuss a report that was recently released by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. The report discusses how historic preservation strategies 
can revitalize cities undergoing major economic and population shifts. In addition, it identifies historic preservation policy needs and provides policy recommendations for all levels of government. This particular report focuses on historic rehabilitation in legacy cities. However, the principal findings can be taken from this report and applied to cities across the country. But before we go into the findings of the report, I'd like to take a moment to define a couple of terms. The report defines legacy cities as communities developed at the height of the Industrial Revolution as centers of industry, commerce, business, and employment throughout the New England, Mid-Atlantic, and Midwest regions, including, also, communities in the West and Southwest where shrinking populations, military-based closures, and high rates of foreclosure have resulted in significant economic and employment shifts. So those make up legacy cities. Now, right-sizing is defined as the process of reducing to an optimum size. Back to the report. The report discusses a number of historic preservation strategies, and I'd like to focus on the role of historic tax credits. According to the report, combining federal historic preservation tax credits and state historic preservation tax credits with other financing sources can lead to the successful, sustainable reuse of an historic structure. The report has found that tax incentives at all levels are strong inducements for integrating historic preservation into right-sizing response efforts. Principle among these is the federal historic preservation. Now, the report is titled Managing Change, Preservation, and Right-Sizing in America and can be found at www.historictouchcredits.com. Click on the Resources tab and go to Reports and Research. In state-level historic tax credit news, I'd like to talk about new legislation that is gaining some momentum in Tennessee. The Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit Act creates a tax credit for the owner of a certified historic structure, and it can be claimed against any state premium tax liability. The credit's equal to 25% of a development's qualified rehabilitation expenditures, and the tax credit will be claimed in three equal installments, beginning with the year in which the certified historic structure is placed in service. The credit has a five-year compliance period. Representative Steve McDaniel introduced the Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit Act, or HB 1474, in January. Last week, the House Government Operations Committee recommended the bill for passage and referred it to the Finance, Ways, and Means Committee. A companion bill, SB 1723, was also assigned to the Senate Finance, Ways, and Means Subcommittee. The Senate has yet to vote on the bill. To read more about the Tennessee Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit Act, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. Click on the Le- Legislation tab and go to State Legislation. To learn more about your state's historic tax credit program, I invite you to go to www.historictaxcredits.com, but click on the HTC tab and go to State Historic Tax Credits. And if you have questions about state historic tax credit programs, I encourage you to contact my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In other state-level news, Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott earlier this month issued several important clarifications to Texas's recently enacted state historic tax credit. The tax credit was created last year and equals up to 25% of eligible historic rehabilitation expenses. The credit takes effect on January 2015, but it applies to projects placed in service on or after September 1, 2013. The Attorney General said in an opinion letter, and it was addressed to the Texas Historical Commission, that, that the Commission may review applications prior to the program's implementation date of January 1, 2015, but the Commission can't actually issue certificates of eligibility 
before January 1, 2015. Projects placed in service between September 1, 2013 and January 1, 2015 may still be eligible for the credit, but not until the 2015 tax year. The Attorney General also said that the state credit is not limited to taxable entities, which leaves open the door for nonprofits to generate the tax credits and then transfer them to a taxable entity. We'll have more details about the opinion letter in the May issue of the Novogratic Journal of Tax Credits. And if you have any questions in the meantime, please contact George Littlejohn, a partner in our Austin, Texas office. You can reach him by phone at 512-340-0420. In renewable energy news, I'd like to remind listeners that Novogratz's annual San Francisco Renewable Energy Conference is only five weeks away. The early registration deadline closes in 10 days, so I encourage you to go online at www.novaco.com and register now. The conference will feature the latest news from Washington, D.C., including status of the extension of the production tax credit and efforts to enact a start-of-construction transition rule for the solar investment tax credit. We'll bring the latest in the projected impact of the sequestration on Section 1603 cash grants and the possible ramifications of the recent Treasury Inspector General report on the Section 1603 cash grant program. This conference is co-hosted by Chad Burnham Park, Dentons, and Nixon Peabody. Panel sessions include a focus on the tax credit investor equity market, as well as financing structures such as yield codes. Our luncheon will feature the Renewable Energy Power Awards. The pre-conference session on Wednesday focuses on the principles of renewable energy finance, with an overview on tax credits, development and financing issues, state of the marketplace, and a look at specific financing structures, including partnership flips, sale leasebacks, and lease pass-through structures. Once again, go to www.novacode.com events to register now. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Next week, I'll provide more details on industry response to the proposed housing finance reform legislation coming out of the Senate. I'll also discuss an Office of the Inspector General audit of New Mexico's use of low-income housing tax credit exchange program funds. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.